Welcome to the Creative Times Summit podcast, where each episode brings you a talk from our annual convening for thinkers, dreamers, and doers working at the intersection of art and politics. Find out more at creativetime.org. This Summit podcast features the co-founder and co-owner of the iconic Discord Records, Ian Mackay. Ian has been a member of a number of DC punk bands, most notably the Teen Idols, Minor Threat, Embrace, Fugazi, and The Evens. He was a keynote speaker at our 2016 summit, Occupy the Future, which took place in Washington, DC. Hello, everybody. I'm Ian Mackay from here. Um, I was watching them Steph Africa people, and I was thinking about the part where he was <clears throat> sort of eliciting responses from the crowd. And I was thinking about just how fucking weird it would be if there was no crowd, <laughs> that he would be. <laughs> and that's art. The crowd is the power. That's, that's art. I was thinking about sometimes when we play shows, sorry, can we, can we put some house lights up? Because this is, I can't see any, that's better, thank you. Um, sometimes when we play shows, I always try to remind the audience that we are the band, they are the audience. We collectively are making a show. If the audience was not there, we would be practicing, right? The energy that happens between a band and an audience is the thing that can elevate the moment and make it into something that is transportive, I guess, or whatever the word is. Um, that's just my opening line, because I was just watching these guys. Back in May, NATO from Creative Time called me and said, do you want to speak at this thing? And I said, what is the thing? And he was unable to explain to me what the thing was. I am still working on what the thing is. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting thing. Um, I said to him, I actually don't have anything to sell, and I don't really have anything to promote. But if anybody is curious and has a question, I'm always happy to try to answer it. So initially, I had said, I will do a Q&A, like a, just a straight Q&A. If anybody in the audience have a question, I'll be happy to answer those questions. And he says, that sounds great. Somewhere between then and now, things change. And they said, you're just a keynote. You're going to talk for 20 minutes. I said, what am I talking about? Um, talk about the thing that you do. Um, then I saw they put do-it-yourself up on the screen, which I think is supposed to reference me or my work. Um, I find do-it-yourself a little bit of a... I find that a, I, I don't, this is not a term I use. I mean, I do things myself, but I don't actually use the term. It seems a little bit of a, a hack term. Um, but what I can tell you about what I do is this. Uh, I am a musician. I grew up here in Washington. I lived here my entire life, I'm 54 now. When I was a teenager, I loved music, like many teenagers. I had dreamed of being in bands, but it was something that was completely out of my reach. It seemed like, um, it'd be like if you were someone who rode a bicycle and wanted to be a NASCAR driver or something. The, the level of musicianship in the top 40 world 
was so far out of my reach that I was never going to be able to do that. Um, so I became a skateboarder, which I could do. Um, I was not a good skateboarder, but it didn't matter. Skateboarding for me was a discipline. It was not a hobby. It was not a sport. It was a discipline. It was something that I could focus on every day. I could spend time with people. I could reimagine the world around me. I could go out and see things differently than anybody else because I was a skateboarder. The weather had a different meaning to me every time. At some point during that time, I was in high school skating and really happy for that diversion because it took me right out of the, what I would say sort of the mainstream of my friends. Like everyone was going to parties and just wanted to get drunk or get high and all we wanted to do was go skateboarding and just removed us from the equation which I'm very happy to be, like removed from the equation. At some point during high school, my friends uh, started to listen to punk rock music or new wave, and it was something that became a bit of a, this is 78, 1978, 77, 78, people started to sort of argue about whether punk was good or if it sucked or whatever, that sort of thing. And I got into the conversation very much on the sucks side. I just thought like, oh, it's terrible, you know. And I was, you know, really arguing on the behalf of Van Halen and Ted Nugent and all those people. And at some point it was brought to my attention that I actually had never really listened to punk, which was true. Um, <clears throat> so I borrowed some records from my older sister and I borrowed some records from some other friends and took them home and listened to them. Uh, when I first put the records on, and this is, by the way, Sex Pistols' first album, The Clash, The Damned, a band from New York called Tough Darts. Did anybody here actually ever heard of Tough Darts? Wow, perfectly obscure. Um, human sexual response, yes. But um, Tough Darts were not a great band, but they were from another planet, right? All those bands from other planets. When I first started to listen to this music, I thought, it does not sound like music to me at all. It sounded, it didn't work for my ear because my ears had been attenuated by commercial music, right? I've been listening to Top 40. My analogy would be if you had spent your entire life eating dinner at McDonald's and then found yourself at a Vietnamese restaurant, right? Um, Still dinner, doesn't seem like dinner, but it is dinner, and it's probably better for you. So I started to listen more closely to it, trying to get my mind around what it was I was listening to. There was one song specifically on the Sex Pistols record called Bodies, which was a song about an abortion, which was a subject matter I had never heard sung about, at least that I could tell, in any song prior, and it scared the shit out of me. Um, I was really very frightened by this music, and ultimately that kind of fear, it wasn't a fear like, you know, run away fear, it was fear like run towards. Because what it was challenging was something in the back of my mind, and what I realized later on was what it was really saying, I think the Sex Pistols really were talking about was self-definition, it was the idea that you were supposed to um, be who you were, decide who you are, and live that. I didn't know anything about their politics or who they were, what their business was. It didn't matter. All I saw was the flare 
of self-definition. That's what I saw. And growing up here in Washington, being a white kid in a black majority town, in a town that is dominated by the federal culture, a town when people say the word Washington, D.C., they just think about big white marble buildings and the president and like, you know, I mean, it's so incredible when I hear people like, well, you know, that's the way they do it in Washington and all that. And I'm thinking like, what the fuck do you know about Washington? Because my Washington, D.C. is not that Washington at all. That's the federal city. I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian, right? That's a different city. So my, my response in the time was like, as a skateboarder, it was already weird enough being a skateboarder from Washington, D.C. Um, my best friend at the time was Henry Garfield, who later on became Henry Rollins. We were skateboarders together. We actually took a Greyhound bus to California to go skateboarding just to go see what skateboarding was like in the, like the Holy Land, right? Um, and that was a very funny trip. Very strange. I was 16 and he was 17. I have no idea how this came to pass. Four days on a Greyhound together and seeing things that we had never seen before um, on the bus. And... Uh, the, uh, and, you know, just learning about what it was to have a, it's like a, yeah, a travel, it was a travel story. But when we got into punk rock, it was sort of the same thing. We started to think about, like, what is out there? Like, what, we're feeling this, what is out there? But first we had to kind of figure out what was here. Like, most of my friends in high school I went to uh, Wilson High School. It's a public school up in Tinley Town. Everyone was just talking about, like, they got to get to college. They have to get out of Washington. You just got to get out of Washington. But I wasn't going to go anywhere. My whole family was here. My friends were here. And as I got into more music, I just thought, like, my music is here. Now, many people sort of gave me this sort of sense that you would be like if you're going to get involved with new wave slash punk, you must go to a place that supports that. And of course, we're talking about New York City around here, right? Everyone was going to go to New York, so there was this. I would talk to older, like, like it was a record store, a record store owner who said to me, very clearly, "If you want to be in a punk band, you have to go to New York." And I thought that's crazy. That just seems totally insane because my understanding of punk. Like what I was thinking about was this idea that this was a form of expression that should be able to be generated from anyone, anywhere. Because it was, for me at least, it was an expression of frustration or passion or uh, anger or uh, creativity. And why would that have a geographical limitation? Unless it's just a business, a business thing, right? Which is still the case today. Like the cultural capitals, everyone goes there. Still, New York, LA, and other towns, but on a lesser level. But what about where you are? What does that have to do with anything? What does it have to do with your form of expression? I was not going to move to New York. There's no fucking way I was going to move to New York. There's just no way. No offense to anyone who is from New York or anyone who lives in New York. I don't, that's, not, that's not the issue. The point is that I woke up here and my friends are here and I felt like, why, could, why are my feelings, like, why are they not relevant here? If you are having these feelings and there are other people you know who are having these feelings, then make something here to feel. 
Like, make it here. Make it, don't go there. That's already been done. You're just joining other people who went there. Fucking make it here. Now, it's also worth pointing out that we were in high school, so nobody was moving anyway. <laughs> and I think this is, brings me to a really, a really important point. Like, people talk about, like, this do it, do-it-yourself thing, like it was like some, like a, a genre or a movement or something like, well, I select this. Fuck that. I didn't select it. It was the art of necessity. I was in a band called the Teen Idols. Is there anybody here who was in 1979 had ever heard of the Teen Idols? Really? Okay. Salute. <laughs> That's one out of the assembled. Um, the Teen Idols broke up in 1980. I played bass. We broke up because we didn't get along. We were in high school. Or we just graduated. One person was still in high school. When we broke up, we had in our possession a recording, a demo tape we had recorded in August of 1980. And we had a cigar box with about $800 in it. That money was all the money we had made for a year of playing. All the money we ever generated always went into the cigar box. We would buy a few things, sundries, like cassette tapes. Um, I actually have a list of things we bought. Coca-Cola, you know. There's actually a purchase of Twinkies for one practice. Um, other than that, we saved all the money. When we broke up, we had the money, we had the tape, and we thought, well, we can split the money up and make cassette copies for each other, or conversely, we can make a record. The interest from the outside world, the interest from the major labels in our band, I would say it was, wasn't even, it wasn't even, there wasn't even a fraction of interest. We were invisible. And why wouldn't we be? We were a teenage band from Washington, D.C. that had broken up. There's no commercial, <laughs> nothing there, right? But, it was fucking important to us. And it was important to our friends. And we said, let's make something to document that. Let's make something that means something to us as opposed to splitting up the money. Let's put the money into that. It took us about four months to figure out how to make a record. None of us, just for the record, just to be clear, none of our parents were musicians. None of our parents ever were involved with the music business. We knew nothing about it whatsoever, at all. We knew one guy who had put out some records. He owned a record store up in Rockville, Maryland. His name was Skip Groff. He had a record store called Yesterday and Today. And he had put out, the one person who knows Skip, um, he put out some records. And we said, how do you put out records? What is that? How does that work? And he said, here's a phone number. Call these people. And I called the people. We called them. They said, send us a check and a tape and we'll send you a thousand records. Just the records, seven inch records. We did that. And then to figure out how to make covers, we took another picture sleeve from another single, opened it up, and we just traced it on the out, like on a 11 by 17 piece of paper. And we put our graphics in that. And then using scissors, scissors, <laughs> we hand cut and using rubber cement, don't use rubber cement for this. We glued the first 10,000 records we made. That, 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is the record industry. Um, in the process of that, I have four minutes and 39 seconds. In the process of that, we started to realize that other bands, we formed other bands, and we thought, we will take all the money, if we can sell these things, all the money we make, we will then use to put out another band's record. And that started a long process of documenting music that we found important. This is, December will be 36 years. This is a label that has been around that is, <clears throat> I just wanna point a few things. Never use a single contract. I don't have a lawyer. Never had a lawyer's. We pay royalties every six months, still, to this day. I have four employees who have health care. I just want to say those things out loud because people think, oh, it's too idealistic. It's not too fucking idealistic. If you just do the work that's in front of you, and most of all, if you don't always look beyond the work to the profit, because that is the distraction. It's the money that always gets in the way. My time with you is waning, 3.20. So I said to Nate, what is this thing? Like, what are we doing here? He couldn't tell me. And I talked to Sally yesterday. I said, what is the thing? What is happening here? Because I don't really understand it. And I don't really understand art for the most part. I just don't, you know, I, I but then I, I realized one thing. Like, I do, I do know this. Art, artists are translators. That I'm pretty sure about. They see something, they have to explain it. And the way they can explain it, if they're visual artists, they make a picture. This is what I see. And if they're writers, this is what they're thinking, they're like, this is what I think. And if they're musicians, this is what I hear. And if they're dancers, this is how we dance. They're translating. And I know it's true, because I have seen photos taken by people standing next to each other, taking the same picture. And the one person is taking a picture, and the other one is making something that is like transformative. So I know it's real, I know that's real. So what are we doing here? I think what's happening is there's these artists, like I'm weird because I just make things and then people buy them, I go play, like I just wanna be with people, like this, like I enjoy being around people. I have a kind of connectivity with people regularly. If you're in a band, you're in a family. If you're a punk rock person, like you're in a family. Like my best friend, my tribe is still exists all these years later. That's for real. But a lot of artists, I think they, they exist in really in an isolation. And it's probably nice, maybe not probably, it is nice to be around other people who are also artists. And I can imagine if I was a kid living in some other country, which I am by the way, well, not a kid anymore, but I did, I'm a kid, a person who lives in another country, and I was able to go elsewhere, and essentially was in a, a cultural exchange. And to go somewhere else, you get to get to know yourself and your own country pretty damn well. You start to understand like the power of this communication. So maybe what is happening here, in my one minute and three seconds left, maybe what is happening here is just an expression. That's what's happening here. Thank you.
Lead support for this podcast comes from the Trust for Mutual Understanding, Blum Media International, and the Blum Family Foundation. Additional creative time support is provided by the Ford Foundation, Lamben Foundation, Toby Devin Lewis, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, as well as Creative Time's generous trustees and individual donors. Since 1972, Creative Time has worked with artists to contribute to the dialogues, debates, and dreams of our times. To show your support for Creative Time, please visit creativetime.org slash join.